This is an ABC podcast. Tim Ferguson is a terrifying individual. The poster for his new live show has him in his wheelchair, dressed in a military uniform. And I think it's very clear his intent is malignant <laughs> and people are strongly advised to avoid his show at all costs. <laughs> the fantastic live show that he's bringing to the Adelaide Fringe this year, which will be on at the Garden of Unearthly Delights. It'll be called Disability Rules. And Tim wants to kick all our asses. He wants to cruelly mock our institutions and beloved political leaders. He's always wanted to invade Poland and to annex New Zealand, as the Australian Constitution demands. I am with Tim Ferguson right now in the living room of his home, surrounded by his trophies, his paintings and his pets. Tim, as some of you might be aware, is my former colleague from the days when we formed, with Paul McDermott, the foul-smelling comedy trio The Doug Anthony All-Stars. Tim and I have known each other since we were teenagers. But there is so much of his story that I've never been able to make sense of. (laughs) And today he's going to help me through the thickets of his life and tell me how he's been managing things since he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, a condition that's transformed him from the young man I once knew to someone who now sits in shopping centres (laughs) whacking young whippersnappers with his cane. (laughs) Hello, Tim. They deserve it. They do, they do. Why are you in uniform on the poster for your new show? Well, yeah, we're we're calling the show Disability Rules. It's part three of a trilogy. The first one, of course, was Carry a Big Stick, which was to explain how I got MS, what MS is, and, uh, you know, what do I do now? And the second one was uh, Fast Life on Wheels. And it's, it's about, okay, now I've got MS, you know, what can I do? But the third one, this one, it's the big one, Disability Rules. And it's about revolution. <laughs> it's, that's why I'm wearing the uniform. It's about a revolution, the revolution of people with disabilities taking names, taking numbers, kicking in doors and taking over. Hence the uniform, right? The Ruritanian uniform you're wearing. You want to lead this revolution? I'm just a a swizzle stick carrier on the world (laughs) stage for this one, Rich. It's uh, the idea is, I mean, it's based upon a serious idea, which is the world is only just uh, waking up to the fact that 20% of the population have some kind of disability. It can be uh, mental health. It can be acquired like mine, you know, MS, you know, has taken over through my life. It can be from an accident. It can be uh, something you're born with. Whatever it is, 20% of the Australian population are at least eligible to apply for the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. That's one in five people. Now, the number of people with disabilities, if we think of that, it outrates outnumbers pretty well all of the identities that are out there. Uh, When people say, hey, we're marching for entirely valid causes, LGBTQIA, um, they're all great, but they're outnumbered by the 20%. I mean, each of those groups, each of those letters is tiny compared to this 20%. And 50%, 50% of people with disabilities across that whole spectrum are chronically unemployed. That's unemployed from the moment of their birth to the moment of their death. And this has to change. So the revolution is about finding employment 
and engagement for all of those people who are perfectly capable of contributing. I have to ask, was this something you knew about or even cared about before you were diagnosed with MS? Not at all. No, I'm a, I'm a late bloomer. I came to it because I started just by hanging around in hospitals or hanging around in, you know, uh, where is it? The Brain and Mind Centre, which is where you can get a mind and a brain <laughs> free, 20 bucks for Christmas in Sydney. <laughs> I was just engaging and talking with people and doing gigs and I started to do fundraisers for various groups, not many for MS because I thought, That'd be too self-serving. But then I started to talk to people and I met people who knew all about this stuff and I got that thing that a comedian needs to get funny. Well, certainly if they're going to be a satirist, which is fury, it's not just anger or being upset or... It was fury. I'm, I'm furious about the fact that people are just waking up now. Uh, and the re you know the reason why Australians are kind of cottoning on to this disability thing and why it might be important, it's because they see the NDIS bill on their tax bills. Everybody's paying for the NDIS, suddenly they're interested. Well, one of the things I think that empowered the whole cause of same-sex marriage was the power of gay people coming out. And that meant that everyone knew someone, had a friend, had someone in the family who was gay... Do you think there's a need for disabled people to come out in some sort of way? Or uh, given that the figures are so high, as you say, there'll be someone who has a disability in every family, in every friendship group? Yeah, indeed. And there are a lot of people who have uh, disabilities that are, that are by and large invisible. I had MS for a long time before I disclosed it because I was the one experiencing it, but it wasn't affecting the way I walked or spoke or that kind of thing. So I think it's it is like another wave that people just have to cotton on to. The importance of it in a commercial sense is really significant. Uh, I was speaking to a person who's in charge of the engagement of disability people with uh, one of the banks and she said, you know, the great thing about having people with disabilities front of house, as she said, which is being tellers, is that when someone goes into the bank... It's never for a happy reason. Think the last time you went into the bank. It wasn't to say, hey, you guys, I hope you're making money. It was to go in and complain <laughs> about something. And, of course, people come in and they're quite heated. But when they see across the desk a person with some kind of disability, then immediately it humanises the bank, which is terrible, but it does. And it calms people down and it lowers the temperature and, you know, it makes it easier for the bank to deal with the problems. One of the things I've come to understand from having interviewed people with various kinds of disabilities on this show is the enormous burden that the anxiety of the able-bodied community place on disabled people. You're always trying to assuage the nervousness and anxiety and <laughs> babbling idiocy of the able-bodied people around you. Have you found that, Tim? Yeah, somebody asked me today, again from one of the corporations, um, how... If we're hiring people with disabilities, how do we broach the topic of their disability? You know, is there anything we can do or what should we expect? Will they be okay if we ask them? I said, well, pretty simply, I think 
the thing to do before you ask them anything is just to say, is it okay if I ask you about your disability and its demands? And then if they say yes, you do the questions. If they say no, well, then you deal with them as the person they want to be. But you just ask permission to ask the questions. The great thing is if you're running a business and you're thinking, oh, man, you know, I got really excited by that conversation on conversations <laughs> that uh, I want to hire someone, what do I do? Then there are places you can go. The Human Rights Commission for Disability has a website called Includeability. That's include and ability in one word. And you can go there. It's got tips, it's got guidelines, it's got links, all sorts of info. And also, importantly, you can get information on how to pay for those pesky ramps, how to pay for the whatever special furniture or monkey bars in the bathrooms. <laughs> you know, people shouldn't take their monkeys, but they do. <laughs> so I think it's that's a really good resource for employers, great and small. A whole bunch of very big businesses have signed on to be part of this initiative uh, people like Coles are hiring a lot of people with disabilities uh, in all sorts of roles through the business. It's not just, you know, hiring someone with MS to stand at the door welcoming everybody. There are people in management down. So I think that's great. Can I bring it back now to your megalomania and the military uniform, Tim? Because seeing you in that military uniform on the poster, of course, brought to mind an incident from... oh three, four decades ago, I think, which is... Uh, you and I have known each other, as I said, for a very, very long time. And not long after you met the woman, Kim, who is now my wife, you both figured out you went to the same <laughs> kindergarten in Singapore when you were very little and she had a vague memory of you running around playing soldiers with a GI's helmet on. Does that ring a bell with you? Yeah, yeah, I remember the smell of the helmet more than the helmet itself. It had that plastic toy smell that toys had in the 60s. It was very reassuring. <laughs> so tell me what you were doing, uh, your dad was doing, that had you in Singapore in your young years. Well, Richard, I was in Singapore, <laughs> not on business. <laughs> I was just a little kid. Uh, dad was being a uh, war correspondent for the ABC and I think the Sydney Telegraph in uh, Vietnam, running around... Uh, Vietnam and we were parked there, my brothers and uh, mum and I in Singapore and we were living in kind of in a compound with a whole bunch of either diplomats or other Australian journalists, wives and partners and it was, Dad was of course in terrible danger most of the time because they weren't embedded. Journalists were just free floating. They could wander around battlefields. The soldiers didn't want to have anything to do with them. It was enter the battlefield at your own risk. But it was very dangerous times. Uh, Dad was there for quite a few years. Was he a legend in your eyes? Uh, yeah, very much so. Uh, not so much for being a war correspondent because we knew the kids of several other war correspondents. Um, so it was just a thing that parents did. It was mainly, uh, apart from being, you know, a child with a legendary father, no matter which child they are. It was mainly as I grew that I could see the uh, the effect 
dad would have on on situations and people. And the fact that, you know, we came back to Australia, he was the EP of Four Corners, a little-known current affairs show. It's a bit like a current affair, but goes for longer. <laughs> and, and he invented with his rebellious Vietnam buddies This Day Tonight, which was a 7.30 show on the ABC every weeknight. It was like 7.30, except with thicker moustaches and uh, Bill Peach as host. Uh, and it was then when all of these cool people would come around with their big collars and get totally hammered at our place that I noticed as like a seven and eight, nine-year-old, this is different. I don't think my other friends have parents like this. So how did it go bad for your dad at the ABC, Tony Ferguson being your dad? How, ba- how did it go bad for him in the 1970s? Well, he did... Uh, he went from being effectively with Four Corners and This Day Tonight the nation's most powerful news producer. The trouble was that uh, particularly on This Day Tonight they would always do stories that weren't just risky. They were stories made by people who'd been in Vietnam, came back to Australia and said, oh, that'll be fun. So there's a great story you can see on YouTube of two lesbians living in Darlinghurst with a bunch of children talking about whether gay marriage will one day be a thing. This was in 1971. Wow. I met a guy who was a kid at the time who grew up. I met him many years later and he said, I remember that story and I remember my dad saying, go to your room, <laughs> go to your room. Um." And putting on draft dodgers uh, as well and also the first full-length Aboriginal activist interview live across Australia. Now, Talbot Duckman, who ran the ABC, called Dad up after that interview and said, I've got two questions. One is, what on earth is an Aboriginal activist? And secondly, what more could they possibly want this was what the ABC was like then. And what did your dad say to Talbot Duckmanton, if that really was his name? Uh, yeah, I know. It sounds like a made-up name. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah, Dad had to write a letter saying that he would ask management before he would do any stories in the future if there was a controversial story. And, of course, he didn't really, didn't really do that. Dad sort of had a fire in his belly because back in Vietnam he'd interviewed uh, Wilfred Burchett, who was an avowed communist and a journalist who was living with the Khmer Rouge. He was pro-Beijing, as I recall, too, and quite yeah. close to, the, to Mao's Communist Party. Yeah, yes. and sleeping with the enemy, literally. And he did an interview with Neil Davis, the legendary cameraman, filming in Phnom Penh, and he sent the film back to the ABC in Sydney and the ABC burnt the film. So for that and other sins, he was forced to leave the ABC or was he out and out sacked? I was out and out sacked. It was on the news. I remember my grandmother going, oh, look, they're using his passport photograph. He was, yeah, totally sacked. Uh, And it was for something about the GPO. Telstra, when it was a public company back in the day, effectively. Right. Yeah. The ABC had said, don't do a story on them. And Dad said, this is news. This is an important story. We have to do this story and he did the story so he got the sack and we ended up moving 
to the country to a little town called Blaney, which is near Bathurst. You go to Bathurst and drive uphill until the engine freezes up and get out and you're in Blaney. So that's where you went from being like at the centre. Your dad went from being at the centre of Australian culture in a lot of ways to this town where Bathurst was the big smoke, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Bathurst was the big fog down at the bottom of the hill. What did he do once you relocated to Blaney? Well, we had a farm with beef cattle um, who were better than dairy cattle, just better conversationalists. Um, but also he ended up running the, the Lindhurst Shire Chronicle, which was the local Blaney newspaper, and he quadrupled the readership simply because he brought a bit of sensationalism. Dad brought in snake news and all those sort of things. <laughs> then he was driving down the hill to teach at Australia's first communications journalism course at a university at Mitchell College, Mitchell University. Oh, that's now Charles Sturt University, I yeah, think, yeah. isn't it? So your dad set up the famous media course at Charles Sturt University that produced all these people who were famous on TV now. Yeah, yeah. He and a guy called Tom Hogan were the two people who uh, started the student radio station. And, you know, Dad said most of the time it's just spelling bees. But <laughs> obviously a couple of good ones got through. So you're this child who's now relocated from Singapore to Sydney to Blaney in New South <laughs> Wales. I, I imagine, you were, you, were you a theatrical darling as a boy or were you not theatrical? Not theatrical. Uh, I think I enjoyed, I enjoyed laughter, I enjoyed jokes because my mum has always been very funny. She'd always tell jokes and, of course, she was super cool. She was ultra glamour. Can you imagine, yes, I'm the wife of the EP of two huge TV shows and Mike Carlton's coming to dinner tonight. I mean, she's... And, of course, she was gorgeous, still is. And so... How did she like relocating to the country then? Not much. But she did it and then made new friends. She found the only Labor voters in the district who happened to live outside the district and uh, they formed a bit of a band of friends and they got Margaret Whitlam to come up to uh, Orange to um, meet people. The photograph we have is just three of the snazziest, the snazziest chicks talking to this timber-top tall Margaret. But her sense of humour kind of infected me. But as far as being theatrical goes, I think that started to eke in when I was leaving Bathurst, when Dad got a job in Canberra then with the Hawke government and it was then, I think, that I started to dislodge myself from this whole education thing. Okay. You weren't you, am I right in recalling that you at some point were educated by the great educator John Marsden, is that right? Yeah, yeah, he taught me English in Bathurst. He was a very priest-like looking guy, always wearing a skivvy, had a little goatee. That's not a priest, that's a beatnik. All okay. oh, right. Oh, that's what they are. Oh, that explains the bongo drums. But he was he was incredibly cool and he just understood all the 14 and 15-year-olds in the class. He was just like, you know, he understood our problems. Did you write poetry for him as a student? Yeah, yeah, I write poems. Oh, they were serious. 
you know what teenage poetry is. Well, take it up a level. Right. Take it up a level. I wrote one which was, my life is a kaleidoscope where all the colours are black. (laughs) And it went downhill from there. (laughs) It's not that I was feeling miserable. I just thought that, you know, poetry is about drama. So like you say, the family then moved to Canberra when the Hawke government got elected. I remember your dad was working as press secretary to Senator John Button when I first met you around about that time. At this time, you say, there was a story going around the family that the family phone was being bugged. What what was the story there, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Dad sat me and Simon and Stephen, my brothers, down at the dinner table and said, boys, don't say anything stupid on the telephone. And, of course, I was answering the phone, you know, going, chink bell laundry. Yeah, don't say anything stupid on the phone because uh, the Ivanov affair had embroiled the Labor Party and the Labor government in Canberra, Ivanov being... A KGB spy or was said to have been a KGB spy working out of the Soviet embassy who'd made friends, I recall this quite well, made friends with the former... Federal Secretary of the Labor Party, David Coombe. And how did your dad get drawn into that? Was he a friend of Coombe's? He was working with Coombe. He was Coombe's number two guy. So you had ASIO or ASIS uh, listening in on your phone conversations? Well, I'm I'm sure they'll be able to clear it up if we ask them. <laughs> but you could hear it when the phone rang and you picked it up. You would hear click, click, which was the tape engaging. And it sounded quite hollow on the phone because it would be relayed. Not like these days where everybody is bugged all the time. This is the time, as I recall, you went to an institution in Canberra known as the School Without Walls. Can you explain what the School Without Walls was and its philosophy? School Without Walls was an extraordinary experiment. It was in Canberra. It was a state school. This was paid for by the government. It was designed, I think primarily based upon an American school called School Without Walls, which was called a free school. Now, we've all heard of Press Hill in Melbourne or Montessori, uh, Steiner. To us, those institutions were fascist because you had to actually go to school, man. You actually have to be there. Whereas at School Without Walls, it was highly encouraged um, and the messages were always based upon independence, autonomy, if anything's going to happen, you have to make it happen. But if you didn't want to go, you were free not to. And what did that look like in practice when you were wandering around the grounds of school without walls, Tim? Pretty empty. But the good thing was that bad kids or throw-out kids that the state system didn't know what to do with, they would throw them at school without walls saying, well, you sort them out. And these kids would be there on day one and they'd sign up and you'd never see them again. So the only kids who went to school without walls were nerds, nerds who wanted to go to the library, nerds who wanted to devise our own courses with teachers one-on-one, even if, you know, you were the only student doing filmmaking, it was up to you and you could put the course together and it would be marked and all that stuff. So there was was a, a balancing of complete autonomy and intense engagement. Like if you turned up, there were people there to switch your brain on and uh, fill it up with whatever you wanted. 
I think a lot of students do prefer to have structure and order in the classroom. I don't think you would have been one of those. How did you go in school without walls? Did you thrive there? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I was there all the time because it was a place where I could meet people, talk to people and make friends. There were no cliques because there just weren't enough people. Uh, The classes were very small. The biggest class I was in was eight students doing maths and most of the time six of them didn't turn up. Uh, The music class was only three students. Like they were tiny but there were other funny classes like studies in sexism which was a class which was, you know, which went a full two terms uh, which was studies in feminism and sexism we were told to read. Faye Weldon and Andrea Dworkin and fiery stuff. And how did school kids dress when they went to school without walls? Oh, well, that's a tricky question because you didn't actually have to. Have to what? Dress. Dress it, at all? It was very loose. You mean kids went, students went there naked? I don't want people to get arrested, okay, but it was, <laughs> it was a very... Really? It was a very loose dress code. But all of the people who went to school without walls who uh, went to university uh, finished their university courses in the allotted time, which for many students who'd been in more uh, regimented schools uh, would turn up and go, what do you mean? I can drink during the day and they would need an extra year to finish off whatever their degree was. School Without Walls would send students who'd already been drinking during the day, so they passed with flying colours. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Tim, before we were talking about your childhood, your education at the very, very freewheeling School Without Walls in Canberra that you absolutely loved, what was it that brought an end to this little episode of utopia in your teenage life? Well, Dad let it go for 18 months or maybe longer, but then he said, right, that's it. You have to go to Narrabunda College. That was good too, but it was the ninth group of new kids I had to beguile, befriend and charm. So when someone said, what are you going to do at university, I really didn't want to go. I was sick of just the social aspect, not the learning. I figured I can go to a library I was reading books and having a great old time, but I didn't want to go and have to deal with students. Teachers, fine, but students, no, I was exhausted. So by the time I left high school, I was kind of a loaded gun. It's just nobody had decided what kind of bullet they were going to put in it. What do you mean? Well, it was like if, you know, if someone had said to me, here, we're the communists at ANU University and we think you should come with us, I just would have gone with them because it would have been somewhere to belong. Or the Moonies for that matter. The, the Moonies, those such nice people. What are you saying about the Moonies? 
Uh, oh, yeah, no, them too. Yeah, whatever it was, I was happy to go along with it. Luckily, the people I met were these kind of very switched on young guys and they said let's form a theatre company because, you know, why would we work for all those fascists? So we did form a little theatre company which then got bigger and bigger and finally we were putting on Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, really big plays and selling out theatres and surviving on that. I met you around about this time. Obviously, neither you nor I knew you had multiple sclerosis. <laughs> was it something you had then? Is it, I don't really know that much about the science of multiple sclerosis. Seriously, is it something you are born with or is it something you acquire later in life? Nobody knows. And that's the really encouraging thing about visiting any neurologist. They just don't know where it comes from. But the first sign I had, the backs of my legs used to behave strangely when I was waking up, when I was still in school. But the first time when it was a pronounced thing was when my eyes kind of went a little bit cross, just a little bit. And so that seemed strange to me. Could you put it down to anything or was it just one of those things you don't think too much about? No idea. In fact, I remember the first time I became aware of it, you and I were on stage at Café Boom Boom in Canberra. Which I rushed to say was a legitimate cabaret venue and not a any kind of a sex club <laughs> suggested by its title. It was actually a cabaret. You say that because you always left at 10. <laughs> I was looking across at you and that's when I noticed that I couldn't actually focus on you. But anyway, you know, after a few weeks it went away and that was it. But every once in a while, you know, these symptoms, wacky symptoms of MS would come back. And they're all wacky and seemingly unconnected because it's different parts of the brain are affected in different ways because, you know, the nerves are doing a lot of work. So there was my eyes. I would get just numbness in a hand or pins and needles for a month in a foot and sharp pins and needles because everybody was complaining, you know, when you're a young person, everybody's complaining about this, that, and mainly hangovers. So I figured, oh, well, it's all kind of normal. And these things would always go away. So we had this kind of very wild ride for 10 years as a group. And we ended up living in London together. And that's when you really knew something was wrong. Do you remember what happened on the day you were properly diagnosed with MS? Was that in London or in Australia? Oh, that was in Australia well after the group. Um, I knew there was something sinister because it was like I'd had a stroke. The left side of my body really started to act up. It was only a couple of years after the group when I went to see a guy who was working with St Vincent's who was a neuro and he got an MRI and he looked at the dots on my brain which are clusters of little scars and he said these are all scleroses which is just a fancy neurology word they you know why why not use scars well because it's better if you know i can charge more if i call them scleroses but he said you got ms and what did you know about ms then oh nothing and i didn't investigate either i had no interest didn't even read a pamphlet why well because i figured whatever it is if it's going to try and get in my way, it's going to have to put running shoes on. 
That doesn't make any sense, though. I mean, does, did you really think that? Yeah, yeah, because he said there's no real medicine. You can jab this interferon stuff once a day, okay. He suggests take evening primrose oil. But no, I had no interest in finding out about it. The other reason was the little bit I did look at had nothing to say. And all of the neuros I've had since will always say more often than anything we just don't know. In fact, the drug I'm taking now, my neuro said, well, it's got three components and we know how two of them work. I said, well, what about the third one? He said, we don't know how it works, <laughs> but it just does. It's that complex a condition. What I understand MS to be, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and it's not very specific. Let me try and get the ball rolling here, though, is that there's something called a myelin sheath and your immune system wrongly attacks it and degrades it and destroys it over time and then that affects your motor coordination over time. How close is that to it, Tim? Yeah, that's pretty well it. The myelin sheath is the coating of every one of the nerves in your central nervous system. So it's tiny, it's minute, and so when your immune system attacks it, then the electricity going through those nerves is exposed and, like any electric cord, is going to start causing troubles. That's basically it. It's like the rubber tubing. So there's still really a mystery when they say, well, we need money for research for MS. I mean, they're pretty well researching the spelling. It'll be a long time before they work out how the autoimmune system relates to this seemingly kamikaze activity. In the mid-90s, you went to Channel 9 and you were hosting this huge show called Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, based on the Channel 4 show that they brought in. Huge thing. It went live to air, as I recall. Yeah, live. How big a production was this? What kind of logistics were involved in making an episode of that show, Tim? We had our own air force. We had a what crew. You, mean you had planes, did you? I mean, seriously, did yeah, you? there were planes. We had helicopters. We had a crew on some nights of seventy people. Uh, we had multiple outside broadcast vans all around Australia. Every week, we would have to devise new games based upon the objects that we'd stolen from audience members' houses, thanks to their friends or relatives that they'd nominated on their entry forms. And if you were one of the lucky members of the audience, you'd be sent away on this, this amazing holiday. That well, was there the was a right chance. Right there and then. Yeah. So while you were making that, as I recall, as a host, you were often dashing up and down stairs quite a lot, a lot of physical activity. Did you know you had MS then? And what if you did, what kind of toll did all that dashing around the set take on you? Well, the toll didn't do anything. I was fit, I was young, and I liked pressure. There was some physical danger. There were a couple of episodes where if you look closely at the tapes, you can see that I'm clearly cross-eyed. Other than that, the pressure of doing a show like that was okay because a big commercial network back then was designed to make sure that the host above all is happy, taken care of, feeling listened to, and given everything they need. So the hours really aren't punishing. And when it came to performing, to doing the actual show, well, it was almost no pressure because I'd, I'd been a Doug Anthony All-Star for 10 years dealing with, you know, crowds and screaming people 
and constant change every night, different venues. You yeah, you love you love being a circus ringmaster. Yeah, uh, you yeah. always enjoyed doing that. Did you know you had MS when you were making the show? Yeah, yeah. Did you did you tell anyone? No, I figured it's none of their business. Nobody can see anything. It's not affecting how I'm working. And if I did tell anyone, they would just freak out because nobody knows what it is and what's going to happen. And the show went on perfectly smoothly. Um, nobody even noticed my eyes were a bit wacky. But, of course, for anybody with a disability, particularly an invisible one, that decision is really an individual one. So I wouldn't advise people one way or the other to keep it to themselves or tell other people. At the end of the day, you can start from the position of saying, this is my own personal medical problem and it's nobody's goddamn business, including my employer, unless it gets in the way of me doing my job. That's entirely up to whoever it is who has whatever it is. I remember you told me you had it in 2006. And it came as a complete shock to me. I had not the slightest inkling at the time that you had it. And shortly after that, you came out as someone with MS on national TV on Good Newsweek, as I recall. What happened after you came out telling people you had MS? Well, you know, it was a friend of mine, Mark Ryan. I, I would, I'd been walking with a walking stick just because I kept falling over and people had started to ask, what's wrong with your leg? What's wrong with your leg? because Australians are, you know, very rude. They call it open. <laughs> you know, they call it they call it fearless. But you're all just rude and you know you are. Australians love stating the bleeding obvious. So if they saw you with a walking stick, they go, oh, you've got a walking stick. <laughs> like, in, in, like you hadn't noticed or something, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, there you are. Yeah. I was in St Kilda in the middle of the night, headed home with my walking stick and this guy walks past me and goes, what kind of dickhead are you, mate, with walking stick? And I said, well, look, here we are in St Kilda in the middle of the night in a darkened alley on a moonless night. I'm six foot three and I'm carrying a large stick. Who's the idiot? <laughs> Who's the dickhead? <laughs> so it was annoying me that people were constantly saying and I didn't like having to make up excuses. I fell off a motorbike. I got bitten by a shark. I told one guy in the street when he said, what's wrong with your leg, mate? What happened to your leg? I said, Afghanistan. <laughs> Just to make him go away. Like, you know, I'm a comedian. <laughs> so I asked my mate Mark Ryan one morning, what do I do? And I was in tears saying, this is just too hard to bear. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, you just have to decide which is harder, having to try and cover it and fib about it and try to pretend everything's fine or just tell people. And maybe he said maybe you can make them go away by boring them with the gritty details of it. So once I'd been on Good News Week with Paul, that's exactly what I did. Then when people said, oh, oh, you've got, oh, you've got MS, You've got MS, then I would say, yes, MS is a condition of the neurological system. It occurs when the myelin sheath around the nerves in your... And I would just go, blah, blah. So the first thing they would regret, whether it is a party or in the street, was asking me the question because you can't go away when someone is explaining 
their own neurological <laughs> condition. So you would pin someone there explaining like the disorders of the immune, autoimmune system to this person at a party? And they will never ask anyone how their MS is going ever again. You've always loved a captive audience, Tim. That's a perfect example of that, isn't it? So, so the trick was to bore them into, into submission in a way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But also maybe they would have picked up a couple of facts about what MS is and the effect it has. The fact that there are twice as many women with MS as there are men. That MS, when it does occur in women, acts far more quickly and is far more severe. Uh, As you can see, you know, here I am, I'm 59 years old. Yes, I'm in a wheelchair, but here I am, I'm talking, I'm about to go on tour with a comedy show. One of my hands is working, I'm writing books, So it's doing everything it can, but for a woman of my age, if she'd, uh, we'll call it contracted it, at the same age I did, quite often it's much harder and her symptoms are far greater. Why is this? Again, nobody knows. I interviewed recently Cynthia Bannon, who is the woman who survived that plane that crashed on the runway at Yogyakarta Airport in 2007. And in the process, she lost both her legs. And she told me it was a very long while before she could think of herself and talk of herself as a disabled person. For a very long while, she spoke of herself as someone with an injury, not someone with a disability. And thinking and talking of herself as someone with a disability, she said, made all the difference, made a whole world a difference. Did it take you a while to think of yourself as someone with a disability? Yeah, it's a good question. Yes, yes, it did. I think my own psychology is based upon, certainly since, the, since high school, is based upon being effective and seeking that catharsis of completion and creation. And because MS has not really gotten the way of the various avenues I've tried... To get around it, I've never seen it as a disability. I've seen it as the occasional stop sign, go back, and I will reverse and find a new path, but it certainly hasn't slowed down my effectiveness in teaching people how to write narrative comedy, in doing live shows, in writing books, in writing movies, in directing movies. We're about to come around the block on another one. There's always a, another way to skin the cat. So what shifted then if you were happy with thinking of yourself not as someone with a disability some, uh, instead of someone with this annoying condition that wouldn't get in your way? Well, privately, in the private sphere, I'm married to a wonderful woman, Stephanie Mills, Canadian and a goddess. In, the, in our private lives, what it means is that there are things that normal people do, like going to barbecues, that we just can't do or we can do but it takes hassle and I need shade and to be fanned by, you know, handsome people takes a lot of thinking and so spontaneity is always the heart of romance or one of the components of romance and so MS has kind of robbed that from both of us. It's not just me who has multiple sclerosis. The thing with anyone with a partner with a disability or partners with a disability, it affects everybody's plans. Most people can say 
or let's call them what are they, 80% of people can say, we're going on a holiday, let's go to Bali, but they can just go. They can buy a ticket and just go. When you've got disability and you're in an electric wheelchair, even getting to the airport then becomes something to consider. Right, there's a logistics plan for everything then. Yeah, and so I I do resent MS's attempts to restrict the freedom of Stephanie and I to just do whatever we damn well please. But, you know, the flip side is that we we love each other very much and we work through it, whatever it is. The MSI have is progressive, which is like a Democrat in America, <laughs> which is they go backwards slowly. The Democrats just, as much as they can, retard the process of America eating itself alive. Right. So it's progressive MS, which means that there is no drug that will stop it entirely. So uh, we have to, in a way, not plan but anticipate that things will really stop working and when that happens, again, have to find new ways to get around it. One thing about MS that I've learned with my condition, it's different for everybody, but mine is that I have a sense of what it's like to be an older person living in an old, what do they call, what's the politically correct name for old people's home? Aged care centre. Oh, yes, one of those is that I've got the experience of needing proper medications, needing help to have showers, bathing, toileting, everything needs someone to help, which is, you know, what will happen to all people if you live long enough. So I feel that the good thing is when everybody I know is freaking out because they're 75 and someone's saying, medication time, I'm way past that. I'm all settled into it. So it's important. I'm not just looking on the bright side. I'm looking at it practically in terms of controlling my psychology as, you know, old age moves in and collides with this condition. But again, having Stephanie makes it all worth doing and making new projects all the time make it very exciting and MS doesn't control that part of my life. You've always had a pretty sunny character, I think it's fair to say. You've always been a pretty buoyant sort of person and you're still very, uh, still a very buoyant person and I think people marvel about that with you. I think they'd expect themselves to, if they'd had MS, to be a lot whingier. I think I would be. I definitely would be. I'd probably enjoy being whingier too, Tim. Uh, that's never been your style though, never been your style, with or without MS. No, no. I mean, you know, people have to make a decision and I don't know if that's true, Richard. I think you're a very strong person and you'd just deal with it. But I think people will have to make a decision early in life and maybe going to nine schools made me do that and the decision is will I be autonomous in my head or will I let the things around me affect me emotionally and affect my perspective? That's the simple thing. Will I be consciously optimistic? And I think there's, there's a certain psychopathy involved in that because it means, you know, saying I will not be affected by the things that happen around me is not a healthy way to go through life. 
but it it helps, particularly with where I am now, it helps maintain positivity, it helps maintain relationships because I'm just more fun to hang around. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, it's been just lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, Richard. What? Hey, no, don't stop the tape. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.